Welcome everyone to the She Can Fix It podcast, a monthly podcast consisting of interviews with female surgeons to highlight and empower the women of orthopedic surgery. I'm Alana, and I'm a second year resident at Yale. On this episode, we have a great interview with Dr. Anna Miller. Dr. Miller is the chief of the Division of Orthopedic Trauma and recently became the vice chair of the Department of Orthopedic Surgery at Washington University in St. Louis. So a big congratulations to Dr. Miller. It is very hard to list all of the accomplishments of Dr. Miller, but I will nevertheless try. She was the recipient of the 2015 American Orthopedic Association North American Traveling Fellowship. Additionally, she is active in the Orthopedic Trauma Association and is a part of the research committee. She serves as an editor for the Journal of Orthopedic Trauma. Also, she was a leadership fellow with the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons from 2017 to 2018. Dr. Anna Miller is a force in the field of orthopedic surgery, and I hope you all enjoy my conversation with Dr. Anna Miller. Dr. Ann Miller, thank you so much for being on our podcast. I'm so excited to talk to you, um, and I've heard and seen and talked to you, and I'm very, very excited. So first of all, welcome to our show. Very excited that you're here. Um, I was hoping if you can describe kind of in your own words your path um, to where you are today and kind of where you started from, you know, undergraduate, med school, fellowship, and beyond. Okay. Um, well, I would say I'm a pretty good example of why maybe we have a little bit of a pipeline problem. Um, I actually had never heard of orthopedic surgery. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know anybody who had had orthopedic surgery. And I um, was pretty sure I did not want to be a surgeon because at my medical school, I was at Baylor and uh, Dr. DeBakey was still alive and it was very intense and there were a lot of legends about it and um you know i was a little scared to go into surgery and when i was in um college actually i had already gotten into medical school but i wasn't there yet and i was playing flag football and i broke my finger oh no and it was kind of stuck like at a right angle Mm -hmm. and i knew it wasn't normal but i also was like well it really hurts to move it so i'm just gonna leave it And my mom was like, you should get it fixed because you might want to be a surgeon someday. And I was like, no, I'm definitely not going to be a surgeon. So anyway, luckily I listened and I went to this orthopod, which I didn't even know what an orthopod was. (laughs) And the guy was awesome. I really want to go back and see him again someday. He was a hand surgeon in Houston. And um, I was at Rice for undergrad to answer that question. Um, But he, you know helped me understand what was going on with my finger. I had a fracture dislocation and I'm going to do therapy. And he was like, you know, you should consider orthopedics. And I thought, okay, I don't know what that is, but no. But, you know, of course I smiled and laughed and he was like, you would be able to do everything except if you had a hip dislocation that requires a lot of brute strength, but you could always just grab a big guy next door. No. uh, Okay, whatever. (laughs) So now I want to go back and see him and say, thanks for putting the thought in my head, number one. Number two, I reduce hips all the time. 
and it's more technique than brute strength, yes. so it was a good <laughs> learning experience. But anyway, I went to medical school at Baylor in Houston, and I delayed doing my surgery rotation because I didn't want to do surgery, so I did surgery when I had to do it. The first day I walked in, and I was like, oh my gosh, I really screwed up. I need to be in the operating room. It's so awesome. But I didn't really like the guts part. Mm-hmm. And of course, I started on general surgery. So I got really excited about my um, subspecialty rotations. And back then, we had two two week rotations, and I picked ENT and ophthalmology. And I was really upset when they gave me orthopedics because I was like, that's just all these dumb jocks. I don't want to do orthopedics. And my first day on orthopedics, I did a total hip replacement. I mean, I didn't do it, obviously. I watched a total hip replacement. (laughs) And immediately, I was like, when am I going to learn my lesson? I have to do orthopedics. So I was really kind of behind the game because I wasn't really planning to do it. And I hadn't done any research on orthopedics. Right. Obviously, I got right on that. And luckily, I had some great mentors who kind of pointed me in the right direction. and I got really lucky. My husband actually, so he was doing his grad school. He was an immunologist, and I was in med school at the same time at Baylor. Mm-hmm. And so his lab, actually, his PI of his lab moved the whole lab to NYU. Oh, wow. And that was when I was a third-year medical student. So I was like, well, I guess I will be applying for residency in New York City. <laughs> and I am an eighth-generation Texan. And I've been in Texas my whole life, went to school in Texas. All my family was from Texas for, you know, hundreds of years. And I never thought I would live outside of Texas. But, um, you know, obviously New York's pretty cool. Right. So I figured I would go and I applied to every um, commutable place that I could possibly find Mm -hmm. near New York City. And got really lucky. I went to the hospital for special surgery for residency. Well done. So I you know, moved to New York City, and when I was there, I, um, so let me back up a little bit, so when I was at Baylor, um, I had this guy named Bill Phillips as one of my mentors, and that was because after I did my arthroplasty week, I then went to Children's for a week, and he's a pediatric orthopedic surgeon, Mm -hmm. and he was the one that I, like, admitted that I thought I might want to do orthopedics. I love how you had to admit that, you're just like, so by the way, there was this little secret. Right, and there were no women in it at, when I was there right. um, at Baylor, and then it was like, okay, all these guys, and it's in Texas, and maybe they're not going to support me, and he was so awesome. He yeah. actually said, Anna, this is great. We happen to have a female orthopedic surgeon coming in town today to give a talk. It was Laura Tosi, who's now in D.C., wow. um, and my wife is out of town, so I'll take you with me as my plus one, and you can see a female orthopedic surgeon. So I was like, well, that's pretty cool because, first of all, he was a mentor and supported me, but also now I get to have this role model. Right. Um, found out later there actually was a female orthopedic surgeon that was at Children's at the time that I met later, but um, as far as I knew, there weren't any other women mm-hmm. in all of orthopedic surgery, so that was good to see. Yeah. Anyway, so then um, he was the one that recommended I rotate with some of the guys at HSS that were really supportive, like mm-hmm. Dr. Whitman and Dr. Green, all men who are all supportive. So I feel like that um, is just something I would like to say that it's great to have a lot of male mentors too. Right. It's all about people being equal and people being um, 
able to do things. It doesn't have to be a male-female thing. Right. So, which we can talk about more later. Anyway, I ended <laughs> up in New York. But I still had this, um, oh, what do they call it? Where you have a complex, like you can't, you don't know if you're good enough to do it. Inferiority complex. Mm-hmm. Um, and self-doubt because when I was an intern... I, um, most people in my residency did the AO course for trauma as a three. Right. And, um, the third year who was whatever doing it had to cancel for some reason. And I was on radiology. So they were like, well, we'll just send Anna because I mean, right. It's radiology. Yeah. (laughs) So, um, the AO course was actually in St. Louis coincidentally. Wow. And that was where, like, my first day at the AO course, I was like, I have to do trauma. This is so cool. So um, I got lucky because I found that out early. And in retrospect, I had been an EMT in college, and it kind of all made sense. Mm-hmm. But, again, I was, like, really scared to admit it to my trauma mentors because they were super – there had never been a female mm-hmm. resident that went into trauma before, and they were very um, – like prototypical male trauma dudes, Dr. Halford and Dr. Lorich, and I love them, but I was a little scared that they might be like, no, you just can't do it. Right. So, but of course, as soon as I told them, which I did wait till I was a third year, because I really had to make sure I was <laughs> sure. They were both super supportive and like, where do you want to go? Let's sit down and talk about it. Helpful mm-hmm. with figuring out where to go for fellowship. Um, and have always been very supportive. Although I did, um, every graduation at HSS that you ask a mentor to speak on your behalf at this one dinner with all the residents and faculty. And I picked Dr. Helfit and, um, he said something to the effect of in South Africa, we don't have women in orthopedics, but I think Anna will be fine. And I'm, that's the greatest compliment I've ever heard. <laughs> so, he's awesome. But anyway, so I was um, doing trauma. I went to Harborview in Seattle, and mm-hmm. that was an amazing experience. I gained a lot more mentorship there. Right. They actually have several female um, trauma faculty mm-hmm. who I became close friends with, Dr. Bangester and Dr. Tatesman in particular, um, and have had mentorship from them, but also, again, the male faculty, Dr. Rout, Dr. Green, right. Dr. Hensley, Dr. Dunbar, they're all great. Mm-hmm. So it's it's just an awesome, um, it's been a great journey. And the orthopedic trauma world is very small. Mm-hmm. And I know most of the subspecialties are, but I feel like in trauma we're closer because we go to the AO courses and we see each other and right. we have a relatively small society at the OTA. And there's a lot more bonding. So it's been really, really fun, um, you know, over the past almost 10 years now, really getting to know people and, like, feeling like you have camaraderie and friendships Mm -hmm. and people you're looking forward to seeing outside of just the people you work with or that you knew from residency. And I think that's really a special thing about trauma that other societies don't have quite as much, although, I mean, there's always some, but... It's pretty awesome. And, of course, it's the vast majority male, but they're great guys, great to work with, very supportive. I've mm-hmm. never felt like somebody was, like, you know, not wanting to talk to me because I was a woman or anything ridiculous. Right, like, right. So, 
No, that's so amazing. I think that sums up my story. That's an amazing story. Well done. <laughs> there are so many questions I have, but I think one of the major questions and topics that you talked about is the idea of mentorship. And I think that a lot of people, you know, talk about, you know, getting more women into ortho and they place so much emphasis on female mentorship. And I almost feel, you know, in the studies kind of some show that, you know, yes, it does help other studies, not so much. One of the things that I always feel, it's almost like this trap door in which we place so much emphasis on female, you know, placing women in leadership positions when, you know, leadership positions don't mean mentorship. And I think the other point is, I think I personally believe in getting on my soapbox, but it doesn't have to be female mentors who guide you onto this path. So my big, I've heard a couple of people speak about this and, um, this first occurred to me when I saw there was a UN um, kind of commission and speech about he for she. Have you heard about that? No, I haven't. So it's the like hashtag he for she. Mm-hmm. And there's a great speech. And like, I'm always a little embarrassed to quote it because it's by Emma Watson. Oh, no embarrassment in any way, shape or form. Love Emma Watson. She's amazing. Love her. But, um, the speech is so good, and I I admit, when I first started it, I'm like, am I going to be able to, like, really take Hermione seriously? But <laughs> it was awesome, and she, um, it's a great speech because it really captures that we all need to root for each other. Right. And it's not really about women supporting women. It's mm-hmm. about humans supporting humans. And then I heard another talk recently about... Um, So this is actually an old quote from Gloria Steinem. She went to Dallas a long time ago Mm -hmm. when she was like a really big, you know, people were protesting when she would come to speak because she's so radical. And she went to Dallas and there were all these protesters lined up and they all had posters that said humanist and they were being insulting and she took it as a compliment. She was like, oh, they think I'm a humanist. It's awesome. But her point was, we're for humans. Right. She's not a female, liberal, radical evangelist for women. She is all about humans, and that's how I feel. We should all be equal. Mm-hmm. There shouldn't be a concern. Like, I should be able to support a man because I think he's the best candidate right. and not have women be like, why are you supporting a man? We're supposed to be for women, you know? Yeah, just You're like, for right. humans. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It's the same reason I also feel very strongly that we should really focus on switching to using the word parental instead of maternity leave. Yes. Parental leave for everybody. Mm-hmm. And everybody should take it. The men should take it too. Because if everybody took it, it would just be a normal thing that everybody did. Yeah. No, that's so, so true. Ugh. Um, that's my soapbox. I, I support that soapbox. <laughs> um, one of the other um, kind of in your story, you talk about how you were introduced to orthopedic surgery late. Mm-hmm. And I think that there, I think it was a study by Hill who, and I forget uh, the title of the study, but it basically showed that men know they want to go into orthopedic surgery much sooner than women okay. do. And I think especially because of the fact that orthopedic surgery is such a competitive specialty um, in terms of you need to have the test scores, you need to have the research need to have the connections in order to get the right sub eyes and da 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 da. And I was wondering like what your thoughts were and so how do we 
get that pipeline shifted up. And I know that we do have, you know, there's the um, Perry Initiative, uh, mm -hmm. there's the Nth Dimensions programs. And so there are some things out there. But I was wondering if you can kind of talk about how do we shift, um, shift and be able to recruit uh, young women to become interested in orthopedic surgery at a much earlier time? It's interesting, and obviously I don't have an answer, or else we would have had the problem solved by somebody <laughs> much ahead of me. But, you know, it seems to me the vast majority of the applicants I see, the residents who are applying, and we read the personal statement, like, I cannot tell you how tired I am of reading. I hurt my knee in fourth grade, and then I met this orthopedic surgeon, right. blah, blah, and I, I do think a little bit as kind of an unsolvable problem like if you're a boy and you're out there like hurting yourself more and you're more likely to see an orthopedic surgeon <laughs> early on I would not encourage girls to go play harder and get hurt more just to meet an orthopedic surgeon right but I do think that there are some things that are cultural that are changing on their own mm -hmm. that are gonna help the problem right that we don't have to fix because more girls are growing up playing sports and doing things now than they were 20 years ago mm -hmm. and all of those things are gonna make them more likely to need the services of an orthopedic surgeon to meet people earlier to meet their athletic trainer who knows an orthopedic surgeon or have a team doctor right so all of that is kind of working itself out Mm -hmm. I think the issue that we can really make a specific impact on is actually a little bit later because we need to work on STEM. We need to work on getting girls in sports and in um, science and interested in medical school to begin with. But right. we're almost halfway there in medical school. Mm -hmm. So really, I think the issue, or we are halfway there in medical school, I think the issue is the medical school to residency yes. timeline. I agree. So I think the first year of medical school, we need to have people out there, you know, I don't know about yours, but like here at WashU and when I was at Wake Forest, both places, they have a thing for brand new intern or first year medical students where um, we have kind of like an intro to the world of medicine. Right. And that would have been a great time for me to like learn that an orthopedic surgeon exists and what mm -hmm. they do. So more programs like that, but also not only to have an orthopedic surgeon come and say, here's what an orthopedic surgeon does, but to say, we have lots of men and women, right. which is not really true. Okay, so we have way more men than women, <laughs> saying women can do it, and we're trying, even literally saying, we are trying to increase the number of women in orthopedics, you should really consider it. Right. That kind of thing, I think, goes a long way to having people even think about it. The other thing that I think is really interesting and was one of my big pushes when I was at Wake Forest is the idea that we don't do enough musculoskeletal education in medical school, period, mm -hmm. which there have been lots of studies that show that. And then they have like, you know, two weeks of MSK or whatever, right. which includes rheumatology and radiology and all that other stuff. Mm -hmm. And then when they go into any primary care specialty, including emergency medicine, 60% or more of what they do is musculoskeletal and they don't really know what they're doing and that's not their fault but then that's why we have this other conundrum of primary care doctors ordering MRIs inappropriately or mm -hmm. having no physical exam documented before ordering an MRI right so I think we really need to push more musculoskeletal in 
medical school also. Mm-hmm. And that will kind of help the whole thing because, you know, if people are interested in it, then mm-hmm. they'll be more interested in the pipeline. Right. And I think what's interesting is that you, as an orthopedic traumatologist, have a specific set of, I think, like myths that when female medical students look at trauma, they're just like, oh my goodness, no. Because I remember when I was a medical student, there was so much physicality in what I was doing, you know, and maybe that was just because I was a former athlete. And so when the guys were just like, go ahead and do this, I'm like, yeah, I can totally do that. And I went and did the physical things because I was able to. But I think that for the vast majority of women who view trauma, I think physicality is something that is very daunting. And I think it's, I think also that we can't just kind of broadly say, no, it's not physicality. Ortho is not physical at all. Because I think that there are some elements of it. So I was wondering how you, as a female orthopedic trauma, well, first of all, you are a female orthopedic traumatologist. I was hoping you could kind of explain to that to our listeners of what that means and kind of go into how you are able to succeed and thrive in your specialty. So um, I have to back up before I answer that question and just say that I was a total band nerd. I never played any sports (laughs) until I got to college because when I was a kid, I had a heart murmur like every kid does, but my parents have no medical background, so they didn't realize that was normal, so they thought that meant I shouldn't play sports because I might like heal over from a heart attack. So when I was a kid growing up, I played the piano. I read my books, and then I got into band, and that was, like, the most physical activity was marching band. And then I went to college and was like, yes, I'm free. I can play soccer and football and whatever. Mm -hmm. But it was not something, like, if you had told me when I was in 10th grade that I would be in a field that was physically demanding all the time and working with, like, high energy and athletes and things like that, I would have been like, no way. Mm -hmm. So you certainly do not have to have a sports background. You definitely don't have to be super physical to begin with, but it is a very physically demanding field. So to answer your question, an orthopedic traumatologist is somebody who fixes broken bones, to put it very simply. Mm -hmm. So anybody who comes in with a car crash or fell or now with our new onset of these crazy electric scooters, We're having more and more orthopedic trauma related to them, but lots of um, those kinds of injuries, and then sometimes we get gunshot wounds and things like that. So Mm -hmm. anybody with a broken bone of any part of the body except for the head and spine, I fix. So we do arms, legs, and pelvis. So when you are doing orthopedic trauma, there are a bunch of different tools that we use, but the first thing is that I use power tools every day when I'm in the OR. Usually Mm -hmm. I try to avoid power tools in clinic. The patients don't like that. (laughs) Sure, they frown upon that. Yes. But um, anyway, so we use power tools, which obviously the power tools help not have to be quite as physical, but a lot of the power tools are actually very big. And then we do a lot of hammering, a lot of pulling and tugging to get things in the right place. If you are, as we were discussing earlier, dislocating a hip or relocating a hip, Mm -hmm. there's some technique involved and some strength involved. So I definitely come home super sweaty every day that I'm in the OR. And also, on top of that, we have to wear full body lead to protect us from all the x-rays. So that adds a little element. So I will also say that um, we have not met in person, but I'm really tiny. I'm only 5'3". And I only say that because I'm always surprised. I was teaching at this pelvis course last year, and we took a full faculty picture. And, of course, I was the only 
female faculty. And I looked at the picture and I was like, oh my gosh, I'm so little. Because <laughs> in my head, I feel like I'm the same size as everybody else because we're just chatting. But I am real little. So the only reason I bring that up is to say that anybody can do what we do with technique and with, you know, it's a team sport. So we have a lot of people in the OR, the nurses, the circulator, the residents, everybody's mm-hmm. helping move the patients around and do things. We use traction and other tools to help. We use the anesthesiologist help to relax our patients. So yes, absolutely. It is physical. You have to be able to do the strenuous part, but mm-hmm. it's not like you have to be a 300 pound football player to do it. Right. That's I guess, how I would answer that. Yeah. One of the other myths that I do want to talk about with regard to trauma surgery and, you know, being an orthopedic traumatologist is how hectic and chaotic it is. Like with, um, when you do total replacements, total joint replacements, you know what cases you have the next day, you know, you have three knees and a hip or you kind of know what your surgery is, you know, how long your day is going to be. Um, whereas with orthopedic trauma, you have no idea. Well, I mean, of course, you kind of, you get the call, but you kind of don't really know what your day is going to look like, what kind of injuries you have, your operative plan. It's almost like a game time decision in the operating room sometimes. So, so it's wondering if you can kind of talk how you deal with that and, you know, do you enjoy that part? And is that why you chose <laughs> trauma or is that something that you're just like, ah, oh, this is no big deal? Uh, neither. <laughs> I would say, um... You know, we had a resident a couple of years ago who was thinking about doing trauma and was like really far along the road. And then he came to me and he said, you know, I've thought about this a lot and I've decided that the unknowing and the kind of chaos like you're talking about would Mm -hmm. be too challenging for me for the rest of my life. So he went into joint replacement arthroplasty. So um, I really respected that because... I think he had more insight into himself than I do. Um, But I will say that you have to be able to be okay with that because it is like that every morning. But um, it's the most stressful part of my job for sure. And I I actually did not appreciate how much that would stress me out until it was actually me being the attending. Because when I was a resident on trauma, it didn't stress me out. I just knew I would see what would come in that day. But for on the attending side, it is a little more stressful. Not... I'm past the point where I'm like, oh, I might not know how to do a case, which definitely happens when you first start. Um, But I, you know, it is hard, like, if my husband asks if I'm going to be home for dinner or if I want to make plans that night, I try to have a firm work-life balance, but it's hard because you do know if a major event happened, another trauma came in, an open fracture, you're not going to be like, sorry, I'm leaving. Um, you know, that is the hard part. So mm-hmm. my, I used to like wake up multiple times at night and be checking the list on the days before the OR mm-hmm. and then be like trying to plan things. And I decided I had to force myself to sleep, mm-hmm. but to get over my like stress about not knowing, I just get up earlier. So I actually get up at 4.30. This is my new latest and greatest iteration. <laughs> I get up at 4.30 on the days I'm in the OR, and I look over the whole list and all the x-rays mm-hmm. and do my whole OR plan by 5.30, because that's when the OR is supposed to know what the first case rolling back is. Right. But my innovation is now I get up and get on my exercise bike, so I'm spinning while I'm checking all that. So I <laughs> oh, nice. 
like at least I'm getting up and exercising and getting something out of it also. And then, you know, I can mm-hmm. proceed with my day. So nice. that is um, a stressful part of the job. But the reason I chose trauma is not that, but it is, you know, related because the reason I love it is the variety. Mm-hmm. So we get to operate all over the body. You never know what you're going to get. You could have three different humerus fractures that are all completely opposite or not opposite, but completely different from each other and that you're going to fix them in three different ways and right. you have to position the patient three different ways and you need three different beds. So it's mm-hmm. really, it's an interesting challenge because I do think even though I did like arthroplasty, I feel like I would be one of those people that got really bored if I just did total hips and total knees mm-hmm. all day, every day. Um, but you're right, it is a nice lifestyle. The other myth that I want to add on to that is that um, there's this myth that your lifestyle is going to be horrible, and I would totally want to debunk that. Um, because in this day and age, so when you talk to older attendings, mm-hmm. and even older I mean like 50, I'm not talking about like super old, mm-hmm. but older attendings often came to where they are now in an era where everybody did trauma after they were done with their regular day. So you would do total hips all day, and then at the end of the day, when you're done with your elective cases, you would add on the two hip fractures that came out last night. Mm. Because there wasn't actually that, first of all, there weren't enough orthopedic trauma people, so everybody kind of had to share that, but also nobody had an orthopedic trauma room. So when I actually told my program director that I was going to go into trauma, he was like, Anna, you're going to regret that decision. Hmm. And I was like, no, I don't think so. And he said, yeah, I mean, you'll like it for like 10 years and then you'll want to go into like something boring like arthroplasty, but your husband is never going to like it. Cause he was thinking of these old days where the trauma yeah. people would work after the elective people's day was done. So like you're, trauma cases are starting at 5 or 6 p.m. and you're operating until 3 in the morning because there's no other OR time. Wow. So with multiple innovations and great people in orthopedic trauma coming up with really good economic as well as just survival mm-hmm. uh, impact of an orthopedic trauma room, now most places have one. So the orthopedic trauma people start their cases at 7.30 a.m. just like everybody else does. So we have a relatively normal lifestyle. You have a little bit more unknown during the day, but that also means you could have that rare day where you don't have any cases to do, which is always a good thing. (laughs) So I feel like there's pluses and minuses. It is a little hectic, but I would say overall, it's so much more fun to have a variety and have, um, you know, kind of the unknown element definitely adds to it in a good way. And it's worth it. And I also would add that my personal philosophy is, um, well, one of my mentors actually said one time, you know, Anna, this is a non-orthopedic person talking. He said, you know, Anna, if you weren't needed, that would be really good for society. And at first I was like, ouch. And then I was like, oh, wait, that's actually true. Because if we didn't have trauma anymore, then Mm -hmm. that would be great. However... We do still have trauma, so we're needed. But on the rare day where you only have a couple cases or you only have one case, mm-hmm. I think it is totally I, – I never am unhappy that, you know, 50 cases didn't come in because, first of all, that's good for patients. And right. second of all, there's always other things to do, like planning your next podcast <laughs> or, 
you know, every once in a while, just go have fun with your family or Mm -hmm. take a breather. So we all need to, I think, have a little bit more work-life balance and make sure you're enjoying your family also. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Um, I do want to take a little bit of a turn and talk about kind of, you are an academic attending. You were at Wake Forest and now you're at um, Wash U, so Washington University in St. Louis for some of our younger viewers. One of the things I want to talk about is kind of something that I think has changed, hopefully that has changed from when you were going through this pipeline versus when I'm going through this pipeline. And that is like the cost of becoming an orthopedic surgeon. Um, not only is there the cost of medical school, which is, you know, the, the debt is, you know, over $150,000 for many people. And then you have your sub-eyes. Um, and so for our younger viewer, um, a sub-eye is a sub-internship. It's where you, in your fourth year, often go to a different institution to, as basically like a tryout. I don't know, uh, Dr. Miller, if you have a better word for it, but it's literally you go there, you spend four weeks at a different institution, and it's um, a place for you to learn. It's a place for you also to see if that's the residency program that you want to go to. Um, you often travel. You stay. Um, you either sublet. Uh, you usually rent a car. Um, and it, that's a cost in and of itself over like $1,000 for each sub-I. Then there's the cost of residency interviews, which the actual application process itself is you know, over two grand, I would say. Then there's the cost of, uh, so the residency application, the residency interviews, and then you move for residency, or at least I did. Um, And then you have all the step board scores. And so the list just keeps going on and on and on. And so it's almost as though, is there an end to this? Or how would you, (laughs) I don't know. It's just, gosh. There is an end, I promise. There is an end? (laughs) Ugh, I don't know. I don't know. I just feel like I'm poor. You know, like some people say, like with boats, a boat is kind of a hole in the water that you just kind of throw your money into. I feel like this is almost where you're just like, just throwing out money in order to get the degree in order to get the residency program and all these things. And I think that orthopedic surgery is different than other subspecialties or other specialties. Like if you look at ENT plastic surgery, and I think the emphasis that is placed on um, the sub eyes and the emphasis that is placed on the number of programs you need to apply to and all these things are not free. So I was wondering if you kind of, as someone who is in academic medicine, what your kind of thought or outlook is on the increase in costs, I feel like of the path of becoming an orthopedic surgeon. So it's a great question. Um, It's a real problem. And the good news is there are a lot of people that are thinking about it and Mm -hmm. are concerned about it. The bad news is there's no, easy answer like most problems um but there was actually a very interesting I don't know if you saw it um article and kind of letters to the editor I think it was in JBGS um or maybe it was in one of those giant journals that we get but it was basically about how we can improve this process because of that exact issue because it's so expensive we're not as an orthopedic society, we're not going to change how much medical school costs, which I agree is a completely separate conversation. (laughs) And also back to college. I mean, there are all these now presidential candidates talking about just getting rid of college loan debt 
which I think is a great idea, but, um, you know, how are we going to pay for these things? In many other countries, doctors don't make as much as us, but they also have their medical school included and paid for by the government. So, um, you know, there are definitely options that are going to be big social reforms down the road for the earlier stages, but the actual orthopedic process we do have control over, and we have let it get out of control. Um, one of the things they did, and I'm sure you probably had friends who applied for ENT, that was supposed to decrease the number of places people applied was to make you write a personal statement specific to that program. Have right. you heard about this? Yes, yes. So the whole goal of that was to be like, well, all these people are not going to write a personal statement for every single program. Mm -hmm. So if we make them do this, then they're not going to apply to as many, which is ridiculous because yeah. ENT is almost as competitive as orthopedics. So right. everybody just starts writing a million more personal statements. Exactly. So um, anyway, this article that I'm referring to, and um, I can probably find it and send it to you if we, if I think about it later, but basically there were three um, kind of letters to the editor about ideas on how to do this, and one of them, which sticks in my head because it was so cheesy, um, was based on The Bachelor, oh, which no. I will just admit that I do not watch The Bachelor, so I don't totally get the reference, but I guess I can figure out what it's talking about, but I guess they give somebody a rose when they pick them. So this article was saying that the orthopedic applicants should each get a certain number of roses, like two or three roses, right. and they give the program a rose to indicate that they're really un un interested. So basically saying, I'm really, really serious about your program mm -hmm. because each applicant would only get to pick, like, right. I don't remember how many they said, two or three but to narrow it down on both sides, right? So the applicants have to be more serious and spe specific about which place they want to go. Mm -hmm. And the programs, like me, I was from Texas. My whole family's in Texas. I am had all my school in Texas. On paper, there was no indication that I would ever want to go to New York City. Right. So every place I went, I explained to them, my husband's here. I really want to be here. I'm only applying in New York. Right. But you know, technically they would have never mm -hmm. known that. And there were a couple of places I did not get an interview initially. And then I emailed them and said, FYI, I really am interested. Right. I gave them a rose and they were like, oh, in that case, then come for an interview. Right. So I think that would help. Mm -hmm. One of the other ones was just literally limiting, like everybody can only apply to five or 10 places. So they just can't go to that many. And then the other thing that came up was your reference to the sub I part, not to eliminate, because I think everybody really does think of it as a tryout and you get to know people better, mm -hmm. but to limit how many people do and even maybe limit it more than it is now. Because mm -hmm. um, some places have even started trying to do three sub I's and I mean, it just goes out That's of control. That's typical. Like for a lot of, like, I, I remember when I was thinking about how many sub I's I wanted to do, I chose to do two and that was kind of absurd. People were like, oh God, are you <laughs> sure you're only going to do two? And I'm like, two is a lot. You know, that's eight weeks away from home. It's eight weeks right. working real hard. And I think... It's almost an interesting thing because I feel like a sub-eye is a rose in and of itself. You know, you right. are by going on these sub-eyes and you're making these commitments because I went to med school at USC and um, in Los Angeles and my undergraduate work was at UCLA. So I was a Cali girl, at least in mo most people's eyes. And so I, I knew I had to go and like 
by choosing my sub eyes in different places, that was kind of my demonstration of I'm willing to move, you know, to whatever program kind of I like. But it's it's just it's very interesting. And I'm, I'm very curious as to kind of how this whole process kind of moves forward. Um, the other thing that a couple of places have done now is they're discussing this idea of getting rid of the fourth year of medical school. Have you heard about this? I have not. Wow. So this is the idea, and I'm sure you remember from recent experience that your fourth year is kind of a waste a when it comes bit. to yes. actual medical learning, right? Yes. Most of it is in your sub eyes and, you know, going maybe some last-minute exams, but traveling and doing mm-hmm. some so for me, our medical school didn't take summer vacation. Mm. So everybody had kind of finished stuff like a semester early because we had no summer vacation. Right. So I actually moved to New York City the first week of December of my fourth year. Wow. And I worked at Williams-Sonoma no. because I was like, hey, I don't have anything else to do. <laughs> um, I loved it. It was great working at Williams-Sonoma. I got such a great discount. And I learned a lot about the cookware and, and such. And I spent my entire paycheck at Williams Sonoma. Oh my god! But like basically, the, a lot of fourth year is a waste. Mm-hmm. So a couple of schools, um, and I think it started at Duke. I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I think it started at Duke and MUSC in South Carolina. I know I was trialing it a little bit. Mm-hmm. Basically, during second or third year of med school, you can apply for this program, and then they kind of integrate the fourth year into the residency mm-hmm. and then your last year of residency you actually do like a mini fellowship so you kind of concentrate mm-hmm. your um whatever you're interested in so right. the idea is to kind of compact it all a little bit to decrease that and these people don't have to do any sub they don't have to travel mm-hmm. and all those expenses are kind of moot but you do stay at the same location so there's pluses and minuses to that but anyway a lot of people are thinking about it, so. That is interesting. I do want to, one of the things I do know about you is that you were a part of the AO North American Traveling Fellowship, or AOA, sorry, North American Traveling yeah. Fellowship. I was wondering if you would be able to kind of talk about um, what traveling fellowships are and kind of your experience with the traveling fellowship. Yeah, so I'm, I was hoping we would have time to talk about this. It's one of my favorite subjects. So when I was a fellow, one of my mentors said, there are these things called traveling fellowships, you should do one. And right. I was like, okay, I'll check it out. <laughs> However, um, a lot of other societies besides trauma had their own, like a sports traveling fellowship or a shoulder one, but trauma didn't really have one. Um, and the AO has a little bit of one, but it's a little bit different. And so we actually, as of just two weeks ago, we officially have started an OTA traveling fellowship. Oh, congratulations. And I'm heading up the committee for it. Oh, wow, well done. That tells you how great I think they are. (laughs) Um, But so the AOA, I think of, and they describe themselves as a leadership organization. Mm -hmm. So as opposed to some of these specialty fellowships, like the OTA one will be focusing on trauma, of course, the AOA focuses on leadership. So they have several traveling fellowships, and the first one ever started was the ABC, which is American, British, Canadian. Mm. And my understanding is that it was actually started after the war because there was so much loss of personnel and um, 
communication, really, that they started this between the orthopedic societies of the different countries to communicate how modern medicine is going and to collaborate, Um, and then it grew from there. So now it includes Australia and New Zealand Mm -hmm. um, and South Africa. So the ABC fellowship is for more mid-career people to travel internationally and meet people from these other countries and interact. The North American Traveling Fellowship, which is the one I did, and I cannot encourage young orthopedic surgeons enough to apply because it really was life-changing for me. Mm -hmm. It is about leadership and it's about getting started early in your career. So it is supposed to be for early career orthopedic surgeons who have leadership potential and then you travel to a series of sites. We did 17 sites in 30 days Wow! throughout the United States and Canada. So they alternate every other year, whether it's East Coast, Midwest, or West Coast. Mm-hmm. Um, and you go to all these sites, you meet leaders there, you meet other people who have done the fellowship, you see how they do things. But it's really more about how to run the business of orthopedics, how to be an academic institution, how to become a chairman. And um, it was fascinating. We met with the CEOs, the chairman, the business leaders of all these organizations. Mm -hmm. And then uh, when I got back, of course, I had been gone a month, so they expected me to repay them with something. So I gave a talk about my experience. Um, But it was really leadership lessons learned at every single site. And Mm -hmm. it was just really, really great. Um, seeing how great places do things because every single place on the tour is a, you know, places that you've heard of that are really well known that are doing amazing things in academics and have great people, mm-hmm. how to recruit good people, how to retain great people. So it was um, really, really eye opening for me. And I would strongly encourage anybody to do a traveling fellowship because so. Mm-hmm. I was an exchange student when I was in high school, and it was one of the best things I've ever done because Mm -hmm. you don't realize how eye-opening it is to travel, to see other cultures, to Mm -hmm. see how people do things, to meet other people until you've done it. And then once you've done it, and I don't mean, it's different when you go on a cruise and you're with other Americans and you're all on the same ship every day and you just eat the same food or whatever, but when you go and you stay in somebody's house and you experience the culture, it changes your life, and I love that so much, so when I heard that there was an orthopedic equivalent of that, I was like, obviously, but I do think a lot of people who haven't had that experience might not realize how amazing it is, Mm -hmm. and I would just say it really, really can be life-changing, and I've never talked to anybody who regretted going or was unhappy that they went or didn't learn a ton from it, so... right. Oh, that's phenomenal. Um, I do want to, I know you are very busy. And so I do want to um, start kind of wrapping toward the end um, with my final set of questions. Um, my first kind of question is that this is a Women of Ortho podcast. Um, and so I was wondering if you can kind of talk about your outlook on women of orthopedics and kind of what you think, is there anything that, you know, are you hopeful? Are you like, oh goodness, where is, where are we going to go? So I was wondering if I could just get your outlook of where we're going to go with regard to the gender diversity in our field. So, um, it's such a good question. I really think that it's kind of like we were talking about earlier. As we become the new normal, it'll just be okay. I mm-hmm. think there's a lot of angst from people who have been around a long time about all these new women coming in and ruffling feathers. And 
once they get to know us and once we work alongside them and we all do good things together, everybody is going to realize it's fine. Mm-hmm. Change is always scary and nobody likes it, but then sometimes you get to the other side and things are better. Right. So I think that it's going to be a long time. When I was a just starting residency, I found an old email that I had written somebody about how amazing it was and how orthopedic surgeons are the only ones in the ED who are still smiling at 2 o'clock in the morning. And I was like, oh, I was so cute. <laughs> but um, so I have, you know, come down to earth a little bit. And same thing with my hopes and expectations for women. And I don't mean this in a Debbie Downer way, but um, it's not going to change as fast as we would like it to. And that's okay. Yeah, the I point agree. is that it's moving in a positive direction, and if we keep doing great things, it's going to be great. Um, so I definitely have a positive outlook. There's so many supportive men and women, and everybody realizes it's going to be an issue that evens itself out over time, and as you know, long as we keep supporting each other. Um, my only real concern would be kind of the same thing with the Me Too movement. This idea of like pushing too much on the backlash which sounds Mm -hmm. really old-fashioned but I just think slow and steady wins the race right and um Ruth Bader Ginsburg is my hero (laughs) and it's not because I'm like her because I'm pretty much as far from her as you could get but it's because I want to be like her right patient and hardworking and she started building the blocks of the things that she does 30, 40, 50 years ago, she's mm-hmm. got the end game, the long game mm-hmm. in sight. And that's what we need, I think. It's really just putting those blocks in place and working towards a good goal, and we'll get there. Yeah. Awesome. So now is the segment of what I'm calling, at least preliminary, the last six, where my final kind of questions for you. Um, oh, yeah. I'm asking... I did not prepare for these. These looked hard. So. I know. I Well, you, whatever answer you have is going to be amazing. So I'm very excited. So number one, what is your favorite procedure to perform and why? So by far, I love putting in SI screws. And, you know, I was talking to somebody when I was, um, somebody was trying to get me to come for a job, but they didn't want us to do pelvis and acetabulum. And I was like, well, I could give up acetabulum if I had to, but I could not give up pelvis. I love putting in the screws. And I love explaining it to the residents because it's been this black box for so long. Mm-hmm. And so many people are, like, put up on this pedestal of, like, oh, these are the pelvis surgeons. We must worship them. Mm-hmm. And when I was a fellow, Dr. Rout explained everything. And his entire goal in life is to make other people not make the same mistakes so that we don't hurt patients. Mm-hmm. And he made it so obvious and so clear. And if you know what you're doing, it just flows and makes sense. And it's so fun. And you really, really save patients. So mm-hmm. it's amazing. It's just, I explain to my patients all the time. I know your incision is only this big, but you could have died if we didn't make it. Mm-hmm. And, I don't exactly say it like that, but like it's just an basically, incredible yeah, yeah, that's awesome. So I love it. Very cool. Uh, what are your go-to topics for ground round presentations? So um, I was talking to Joe Shu uh, from Carolina's Medical Center about this recently because we had a not so great ground rounds um, at WashU and. I was asking him about it because when he came, he gave a great ground rounds mm-hmm. and he said. 
so many people give a grand rounds that is just like touting their research or fluffing their CV, and your grand rounds needs to interpret the data for people. It should be something you're an expert in, but it should be some and something that you've published on. Right. But you should be able to kind of assimilate it and tell a story and give them more information about the whole picture of that part of the field hmm. than just here's the research project that I right, did. Right. So the things that I talk about a lot that probably that I most commonly get asked to talk about are more related to osteoporosis and fragility fractures and particularly atypical femur fractures. Hmm. And I think that's one thing that um, I was a little resistant at first because I was like, I'm a trauma surgeon. I want to be talking about pelvis and acetabulum. But it's extremely important and it is totally neglected at a lot of places. And I do think I have a lot to give in that area. So that's probably the number one most important thing. I've actually talked about the North American Traveling Fellowship several times. I have um, a couple... A lot of my research in the past was about ankle fractures, so I talk mm. a lot about ankles and the posterior malleolus controversy and what's the difference between an ankle and a pilon. So those are kind of my go-tos. I'll be at your alma mater yes. in a few months talking about it. Oh, very cool. Well done. Oh, yeah. I do miss that place. I will say that. Um, <laughs> I know. it's And especially the weather. This East Coast business, I'm not a fan of. This is my first... <laughs> I know, because it was like, what's hilarious is everybody is very excited about the seasons, right? Um, Because I was born and raised in Hawaii, so this is my first, like, actual Uh, winter. Um, And everyone was saying that it's it's a very mild winter, the winter we just had, and I'm like, it was not mild for me at all. Um, So this is going to be interesting next four years. Um, But what is your favorite memory as an orthopedic surgeon? Mm, that's a toughie that's one of the toughie ones yeah I mean there's so many Mm -hmm. I'm not stumped because I can't figure out one I'm stumped because there's just so many um well I guess one of my favorite stories which is kind of a memory is the first time I ever did SI screws with Dr. Rout when I was a fellow Mm -hmm. the patient sorry not the first time the first time we ever did it prone because Mm -hmm. normally we always would do it supine the first time I ever did it prone, it was like I had never held any tools before. I felt like such an idiot. I couldn't do anything right. Everything was going horribly. He finally just took over and did it because he was like, this is ridiculous. And I went home that night and I was like, man, why? Why was that so hard? Because I was getting really good at doing it with the patient supine. Like, right. What the- and I was thinking and thinking and thinking. I came back the next day and I was like, Dr. Rowe, I figured it out. I figured out why it was so hard. I was like, it's like we were doing the surgery upside down. And he turned to me and he goes, Anna, we were doing the surgery upside down. Like, no. you know, <laughs> oh my God. Which I loved. Oh, that's awesome. Well done. Um, so as much as we love operating and as much as we love being surgeons, I was wondering if you could talk about what your favorite activities are outside of the operating room and outside of the hospital. This is easier for me. So um, I actually have a lot of activities I like to do. Like everybody makes fun of me for being so interested in things outside, but it's probably because I don't have kids. So I have time to do other fun mm-hmm. stuff. Um, so I'm actually, I've become my mom. 
Oh, no. So I'm really obsessed with gardening. So we have a wildflower garden that is all bird, butterfly, pollinator garden. Mm-hmm. Then we have a Japanese Zen garden. Ooh. And then I have my vegetable garden. And the Japanese garden has a moss garden in it, which is like the thing everybody wants me to shut up about because I talk about it all the time. Um, so I love gardening and I love to read. So I actually listen to a lot of audiobooks while I'm gardening. Mm. So it's a great like combo of mm-hmm. my two things. So that's my, if I lost my job tomorrow, mm-hmm. I would go be a pruner in the Japanese garden at the botanical garden here and just like make every little tree perfect. So that's my, Oh my God. That's amazing. <laughs> I hear you're also a foodie as well. Is that right? Oh yeah. yeah. I also love to eat and cook. Although my husband has taken over most of the cooking. He's like a master chef at this point. But yes, we, um, we're we very good at um, finding restaurants, mm-hmm. eating at restaurants. We cook a ton at home, which is partly why we have the vegetable garden. But, um, you know, we're kind of the like go-to people. When people are going to visit a new city, I'm like, oh, I have a list of places you should try. So, oh, yes. Nice. Very cool. What are your future goals slash projects that you kind of have in mind for uh, your future? For orthopedics? For non-orthopedics. <laughs> I, I leave it open to you. So my big push right now is um, I really want to keep growing the trauma service here mm-hmm. at WashU. So we are hopefully expanding to another faculty member next year. Congrats. If we find the right person. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think over the next couple of years, I'd like to grow to two fellows for our orthopedic trauma fellowship. Mm-hmm. And I would love to increase at that point how our residents, um, basically the way the resident rotation goes and kind of change that up a little bit, have a little bit more of an elective practice for all of us. And um, obviously, along with that, have an increasing opportunity to do clinical research. Mm-hmm. And one of my partners is starting to get into some basic science research. I've been involved a little, but perhaps a little bit more of that down the road. And then I long term would love to be more in the leadership of some of our societies. Mm-hmm. If that pans out, I got to just keep doing a really good job. Um, but I think doing that and then now heading the OTA traveling fellowship is my latest big project that I'm very, very excited about. Know, All that sounds amazing. You know, in orthopedic trauma is like, stop emailing me. So, <laughs> you know, people, you know, young people in the first few years of practice are interested. Be sure to I will them. send them but, your way. hundred percent. Um, my last question for you is what advice, and I know we've talked about this a lot, but what advice do you have for orthopedic surgeon and orthopedic surgeons in training? Um, I guess I would say enjoy what you do. Cause obviously everybody says this, but it's really true. We have a really fun job and there are parts that are stressful and there are times you're going to get upset and there's going to be issues, but we're really, really lucky to do what we do. And we're lucky that our patients appreciate us, you know, and a general surgeon can save somebody's life by taking out their appendix. And then like two weeks later, nobody remembers them because they, your appendix never bothered you before it was taken out. So you kind of forget about it. And it's unfortunate. They really do save lives, but our patients really are appreciative and thankful and, you know, really enjoy being able to get back to what they want to do. So just enjoy it, I would say. And the other thing is, um, you know, if you're interested in being in leadership and if you're interested in 
and that could include in your local hospital or just within your team or on a national level. It seems obvious, but you have to say yes when people ask you to do things. But Dr. Peabody told me when I was on the traveling fellowship, you don't just say yes. You say yes, and then you do a great job. And then you get asked to do the next thing. So I think that it is, um, you know, a minor little kind of footnote to that. But I think there are a lot of people out there who maybe get overextended and say yes to a lot of things, but then they don't follow through. Right. So really, you know, getting involved in things and you're going to have a whole lot more success doing that if they're things that you're already passionate about. So Mm -hmm. say yes to the things that really excite you. Awesome. Well, Dr. Miller, thank you so much for your time. I know you are very busy and I'm, I absolutely love talking to you and I really hope you have the best of luck with everything that you're doing. So thank you you so much. As an aside, I apologize because I, when you said you were from Hawaii, I was like, oh my God, we have met before when you came and interviewed and I had totally, sorry, I did not connect. No, you are good. As soon as you said that, I was like, oh yeah. I know. Well, thank you. This is great. Good luck. I'm sure it's going to keep being amazing. Thank you, Dr. Miller. I really do appreciate it. I hope everyone enjoyed this episode of the She Can Fix It podcast with Dr. Anna Miller. Please subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or YouTube. You can find us on the web at shecanfixitpod.com. We're on Twitter and Instagram at SheCanFixItPod. References for this podcast include the two articles published in JVJS. The first article is entitled The Uneven Distribution of Women in Orthopedic Surgery Residency Training Programs in the United States. It was published in the January 2012 edition of JVJS. The second article is entitled A Five-Year Update on the Uneven Distribution of Women in Orthopedic Surgery Residency Training Programs in the United States. It was published in the August 2016 edition of JBJS. Finally, I want to say thank you to all the listeners who are taking the time to listen to our podcast. I know we are all very busy people, so I do sincerely appreciate it. Please subscribe to wherever you listen to your podcasts. Please also spread the word. Tell your friends, your mentors, your medical students. If you have any questions or would like to hear a friend, mentor, legend on this podcast, please feel free to email us at shecanfixitpod at gmail.com. I would like to take a moment to thank those who helped to make this podcast possible. A sincere thank you to Dr. Mary O'Connor for her mentorship in creating this podcast. Thank you to the amazing attendings here at Yale. Dr. Carrie Swigart, Dr. Adrian Sochi, Dr. Elizabeth Gardner, and Dr. Andy Halim for being exemplary role models for us. And finally, many, many thanks to my editor and co-producer, Andrea Vanny Kirk, without whom this podcast could not be possible. <laughs> <laughs>